Welcome to the Pilot's Journey Podcast, where we discuss aviation training and the steps involved in maintaining proficiency. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with additional knowledge and maybe a new spin on topics related to your training. I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor in Fort Worth, Texas. This episode, we'll be discussing weather and uh, how to prepare for a safe and enjoyable flight. We have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Gordon Barnes, a former captain that flew with Pan Am from 1948 to 1960. He was then a meteorologist for NBC and CBS affiliates in Tampa, New York, and Washington, D.C. He's now a ground instructor and dispatch instructor for American Flyers in Fort Worth. Mr. Barnes, welcome. Good evening, everybody. I mean, good day. Hello. How are you? <laughs> it's good to have you on. Uh, for people listening, uh, I used to work with Mr. Barnes and enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, thank you, Stuart. You've got a pretty impressive resume. Could you give us a little synopsis of your career? Okay. All right. Let me just do it in a real nutshell for you. First of all, I was born and raised on the island of Bermuda of a father from Boston and a mother from uh, Bermuda, whose father, my grandfather, came from Tuscaloosa in the Azores Islands, and some of our listeners may have flown into what used to be Lodges Air Force Base uh, on the island of Tuscaloosa. And upon graduating from, from high school, I was only 16. I joined Pan Am, and on my 17th birthday, I was assigned to New York at the request of the owner of the airline, Mr. Juan Tripp, and there I received all my flight training and ground training. And on my 18th birthday, I had my private instrument, commercial and multi, and then immediately went into DC for ground school. And six weeks later, I was flying DC for cargo from New York to Gannon, Newfoundland, Catholic Iceland, London, England, and Frankfurt, Germany, a 36-hour flight. I was what was called the second officer. I was the guy that stood on the stool with a sextant, looked at the Astrodome, and shot the stars at night and the sun during the day to find out exactly where we were. Shortly after that, within six months or so, I upgraded to the Constellation, and I flew that primarily to Calcutta, India. And then I went on the old double-decker, the old Stratocruiser, which was a phenomenal airplane. That was basically uh, New York to Bermuda or to England or to South America. And then went from that to my favorite airplane, the DC-6B, and then eventually on the DC-7C, and then uh, on the 707, but only for a four-month period, and then back to the 7C. And I left Pan Am in 1960 because of my son's illness. He, uh, unfortunately, uh, got malaria for the third time when I was living in West Africa, and I flew back to New York to save his life. He's fine nowadays. But while with Pan Am, I was based in New York, and then right after I made captain in 1955, I was assigned to Karachi, Pakistan for two years to run Pan Am's operations from London, England to uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And while we were there, uh, while I was there, I should say, Pan Am had a contract with the United States government to help other countries start their airlines, and I was involved in the startup of three airlines, which are still flying today, Pakistan International Airlines, headquartered in Karachi, Iran Air, uh, with headquarters in Tehran, Iran, and Ariana, the Afghanistan airline, uh, which is headquartered in uh, Kabul and Kandahar. So I've been to Kabul, Kandahar, Calcutta, Delhi, you name it, Baghdad, Basra, and I used to go sightseeing instead of going to sleep. Then they promoted me and sent me to Accra, Ghana, West Africa, to run the operation from Lisbon, Portugal, to Johannesburg. And that was quite an experience. For example, to give you an idea that when we study weather, we better make sure do we know we're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. For example, one night flying from Accra, Ghana, southeast, to what was then Leopoldville in the Belgian Congo, which is now Kinshasa in the Congo, we crossed the equator. Going from Accra to the equator, prevailing winds are out of the east and south of the equator. They are out of the west. 
And for some reason, I guess we were tired, but we made a correction to the left instead of to the right after crossing the equator, and we were slightly off course, about 140 miles, when we realized it by, by taking a three-star fix. And I lied my way. I just told the Leopoldville ATC people that we were circumnavigating thunderstorms and that we'd be a, a little late. So that's one weather situation. Second is... Can you have two kinds of fog in one night? And the answer is yes. In Accra, in what is called the wet season, which is July and August, once the sun sets, the winds are strong out of the south off the Gulf of Guinea, creating what is concerned uh, or construed as advection fog. Then uh, later on at night, it will dissipate because the wind slacken off and becomes radiation fog. How did I find that out? One night I had an airplane coming in for a landing, and he went missed. He wasn't the best captain, but anyway, he went missed. <laughs> and he diverted to Abidjan and the French Ivory Coast at that time. And uh, and I said, oh, no, it's now quarter to one in the morning. i got a bunch of passengers and cargo and mail to put on the airplane, and I was mad. So I went walking up uh, the towards the end of runway uh, two three, and I noticed that I looked up and I saw the stars out, and I saw a Ghanaian sheep farmer herding his sheep across the approach end of the runway, and I went up to him. I said, "Good morning. How are you?" He says, "Oh, you be big master of uh, white bird. I mean, big white master of big bird, I should say, and because they speak pidgin English there." And I said, "Yes." And I said, why are you moving your sheep now? He said, I do it every night this time. And I said, why? He said, well, sun go down, fog come in. A little later, fog go up, I move my sheep, fog come back. And I said, really? So the next night, I went out with a stopwatch. And sure enough, it was dense fog, advection fog, until about 1235. At that time, the ceiling started to lift. The fog started to dissipate at my stopwatch. The next thing you know, it was crystal clear. Then at about 1.18, 1.19 in the morning, ground fog started to develop because the ground was, was moist and the air was cool. So ground fog came back, and we were closed down at 1.25. So after that, all the airplanes would have to land between 1.36, and they had to be out by 1.18. Uh, 12.30, excuse me. They had to land by at 12.36, and they had to be out out of there by 1.18. That's how you can have two fogs in one night. I, did, I leave you in the, did I leave you in a fog, Stuart? Yeah, you left me in the fog, definitely. I can't, uh, if I ever have even half those experiences, I could die a happy man. That is, that is well, crazy. You must have seen quite a few changes come and go. Well, nowadays we have what is called 121.5, your VHF emergency frequency. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, now, back in those days, we did not have that. We, I flew into many countries that never had VHF. Everything was HF radio. And uh, two things come to mind. One was one night flying from uh, Dakar, Senegal, down to Robertsfield, Liberia, and we're on HF radio, and we are descending. And we're calling Robertsfield, Robertsfield, this is Clipper 150, Robertsfield, Clipper 150. No answer. All of a sudden we hear, hey, Clipper uh, 150, this is San Juan, can I help you? Uh, yeah, you can help me. Here you go, we're 3,000 miles away, and what's your problem? I said, we can't contact Robertsfield, we want a landing instructions, we're at 9,000 feet, and we are descending, and we have the airport in sight. And uh, he said, okay, stand by a minute. And he said, Robertsfield, this is uh, San Juan. Do you read Clipper 5-0? No? All right. He says he has a field in sight once landing clearance. Then he came back and said, uh, Clipper 150, this is San Juan. You're cleared to land on uh, runway uh, 09. Report on final. Okay? Again, we call Robertsfield. No answer, but we got our clearance. And we were reported on final to San Juan. We landed the airplane, and we never were able to talk to uh, Robertsfield Liberia Radio because of atmospheric skips on HF Radio. 
something else you mentioned earlier was navigating by the stars with a sextant. Uh, I've heard of that on boats, but it's kind of common to do that on aircraft, isn't it? Well, in the airplane, in the airplane, uh, uh, in the navigator's station in the center of the airplane, uh, on this ceiling, I guess you would call it, we had a window there. It was called an astrodome. And we would lock the sextant into that location and then stand on a stool and look through the sextant, the same as you would on a ship, look through the sextant and pick out our, our three stars that we wanted. I would get the, um, the declination angle, then go to my chart, the almanac, and it would say at that time, zero, you know, in Zulu time, uh, at that angle, and I'd get three of them, and it would give me my approximate latitude and longitude. And we were accurate within uh, 15 or 20 miles, which was good enough over the ocean. Man, as an instructor, I don't think I could ever teach one of my students how to do that. Uh, I have enough trouble teaching GPS. <laughs> and, oh, you uh, mean guessing position system? Yeah, the guessing position system, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. I'm not a big fan of GPS as yet. Yeah, I, am thing... still, I am still an ADF man, Stuart. Really? Uh, I. Oh, yeah. I'm a VOR man myself. I, uh, yeah. I, I think GPSs make things a little too easy. I think it makes things so easy that it actually hurts the pilot skill level, but they, they're fun to use every now and then, especially if they have well, weather on them. Well, but the thing is this, that you have a tendency to become complacent because you must always, remember this, you must always fly an airplane with only one thought in mind, and that is, what if? Meaning, yep. what if this fails? What do I do besides say the Lord's Prayer backwards? <laughs> That's that, true. That will save you. That will save you. <laughs> and the other well, thing it, that I wanted to quickly state was, I talked about 121.5. Our emergency frequency back in those days was 500. We call it killer cycles. Now you call it kilohertz. And it, it was on the cockpit uh, speaker at all times. And we run across the ocean between Ganver and Shannon, and all of a sudden at 2 o'clock in the morning, it was always in Morse code where it did it, did da, 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 did it, did. And I looked at the co-pilot and the engineer, and they looked at me, and they said, uh-oh, somebody's in trouble. So we contacted Gander Radio and asked them for permission to divert off course, tuned our ADF to that uh, frequency, and it showed the signal was coming from uh, to the southeast of us. So, oh, relative bearing about 40 degrees. So we went over. We were at 17,000. And the next thing I know about, oh, and half hour or so later, we got a needle reversal. So we knew the signal was coming from below us. So we got permission to descend down to 3,000 feet. And then we would just go back and forth with the needle reversal. And then all of a sudden we were making our turn towards them. We had lowered the, uh, slowed the airplane down to VSO. We had gear down, flaps down, landing lights on. The next thing we do, we see a flare go up. And we had awakened the passengers and asked them to help us by looking out the window to see if they saw anything. And we went over three life rafts that were tied together. And so we got the navigator to take a three-star fix, gave the position to Gander and stayed there for about, oh, maybe 30 minutes. And then on my final approach towards them, because I had to get out of there because I was burning up fuel, I simply gave them the international Morse code of okay, da, 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 using the landing lights, and then climbed and got out of there. And they were picked up uh, 12 hours later. It was 12 seamen who were uh, blown up in an oil tanker. So that's my contribution to saving a life. Wow, that's incredible. Is there anything you have not done in your aviation career is now what I want to know. I think that's the actual answer I need to ask you. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I've never flown uh, faster than the speed of sound. I've never been in the space shuttle. Uh, but in aviation, <laughs> Stuart, as I have told you many times, you know, God has been good to me. I've lived a good life, and uh, and by aviation, I start in aviation, and I'm finishing in aviation. That is a... Uh... That is definitely so. That is definitely my dream. Well, let's hope it works out for you. Just have to be patient sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. you mentioned weather earlier, and it just so happens that today's topic is about weather. And I didn't think uh, I, I think that no better person to have on our show other than you. 
who's been a meteorologist for several years. Let's talk about obtaining weather really quick um, right. and the best ways to go about obtaining weather. Yeah, my opinion on that, uh, Stuart, I think every competent pilot should contact flight service to get their weather briefing. That's, it, that's mine, it too. Is true. It is true. Yeah, we got the Internet. But you have to you got to realize this, and that is the Internet is not available to everybody all the time at every location. And uh, but at least if you've got access to a telephone, you can at least you can at least uh, contact flight service via a telephone. And uh, it brings up a good question talking about weather. This is a question I ask all the time. When is a flight initiated? For example, we know that operational control of a flight is what I call ICT, I-C-T the initiating, the conducting, and terminating of a flight. But when is a flight initiated? And the answer is under Part 91, when you file your flight plan, you have initiated the fact that you are going to fly. Same thing for Part 135. However, under Part 121, your scheduled uh, airlines, the flight is initiated when the captain signs what is called the dispatch release at the gate. Uh, where people, passengers get on board the airplane. You'll notice that a lot of times when you fly, the captain goes behind the ticket counter, looks like he's on a computer, which he is, and he's downloading his dispatch release, which contains all of his information. And once he signs that, then the flight is considered to be initiated. Then he must go out and do his walk around and so on and so forth. So going back to, you know, what you do for a living, and that is for other operators, under Part 91, your flight is initiated when you file that flight plan. But before you file your flight plan, you must contact flight service, get your weather for your uh, departure airport, any airports that are en route, your destination airport, and also for your alternate. Get your winds of law forecast, and then take your time making your flight plan and then filing the flight plan. That's how it should be done, Stuart. That sounds about right. Yep. I mean, it's it, you know, it's a lot of people just say, well, they want to go flying and so on and so forth. But it, if if you do it the right way, and you won't get in violation of the FAA by, you won't be making any bad errors, bad judgment, or anything like that. And it also helps the Civil Air Patrol and other people to find you in the event. God forbid, but in the event something happens and you have to go down, at least they know where to go and look for you. I've heard, uh, I guess it's uh, there's a private pilot written question that asks you, what is the primary means of obtaining weather, right? Yes. And it's and it's 1-800-WX-BRIEF. It's the flight service station, Correct. right? Because yeah. um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, if you just get the weather off the, the computer – which is pretty much all they're reading to you anyway. Uh -huh. But but when you call the flight service station, you record your tell number, your you know, you give them your name, you know, if you're flight plane, you give them your name. So there's a there's a recording uh, a filed your weather briefing's on file. So right. I had I've had an experience where I've called the weather briefer and got the weather, got an IFR flight plan, took off and immediately had to cancel our flight and divert back to Meacham because a snowstorm came through in Texas, right. oddly enough, who would have thought? Yeah. But uh, but we were descending on the ILS, popped out of the clouds, and snow was coming down and blowing past the airplane. Right. And um, there was uh, an FAA guy on the ramp ready to talk to us when we landed because he saw, he heard over the radio while he was at Meacham that there was a Cessna on the ILS. He looked outside and saw it was snowing. And he wanted to know why we were flying in known icing conditions. And I told him, hey, we called the briefer. He he looked it up. He saw that we did call the briefer, and we were in the clear. And the briefer called us and gave us a formal apology that, you know, right. he doesn't know. He just reads what's on the screen anyway. But it's yeah. that's really – that's a situation I would have been in a lot of trouble if I had not called that briefer. That is correct. Like All right. Let's just take it one step further. Let's say that you are going to fly from Fort Worth Meacham Airport and you are going to go to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Sounds like fun. And you, 
Huh? I said it sounds like fun. It sounds like fun, yeah. yeah. You've got to spend 24 hours in Shreveport. <laughs> but anyway, you, you call and you get a briefing. And let's say the briefing calls for crystal clear all the way. And you get the winds for 7,000 feet. You file an IFR flight plan. And you take off and you head on out. And you get, say, over Longview or Tyler, Texas. You're at 7,000 feet. And the actual outside sky conditions are exactly as forecast. Should a pilot give a pirate? And I am a real stickler on this. You should always give a pirate. Why? Well, where is? I ask you one simple question. Where is the person that made the forecast? Is in a room somewhere near the airport, three doors, one window, and he can't see at 7,000 feet <laughs> over Longview, Texas. The FAA wants, wants as many pilots as possible. In fact, forget that. All pilots to give pirates. For example, going back to my scenario, you're over, 7, over Longview at 7,000. You have one gauge on the airplane that you can give the weather information, and that is temperature. You tell them, oh, the temperature is minus 7. Really? Because when the forecaster made his forecast, he was forecasting minus 5. That's 2 degrees colder. What's your standard lapse rate? 2 degrees per 1,000 feet. Ooh, do I have to put out an air med? Is there a possibility of cold air advection there that will cause moderate turbulence? even though it's crystal clear. And if you are fortunate enough to have this GPS stuff on the airplane, you can also give them the wind direction and velocity. The person on the ground does not know what you are experiencing. You help two people when you do that. You help the, the meteorologist who is waiting for the information, and you also help your fellow pilots. Always think of the other person. What do you want the other person to tell you while you are flying? Understand? Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. And uh, kind of a little preview at the end of the show. There's a um, I'll give it away. I pre-recorded a call to the flight service station just to get a standard briefing over Florida right now because there's some thunderstorms yeah. over Florida. And the briefer tells me that there's only one pyrep. You know, there's convection. There's convective signets everywhere. And she goes, only one pyrep. Uh, Cessna reported at. Uh, 8,000 feet, uh, light rain. Yeah. And she's telling me about thunderstorms and winds and towering cumulonimbus at 43,000 feet. And it's, I took everything to keep from laughing on the, on the recording that there's a little Cessna out there somewhere who reported light rain. Yeah. And so. I'll tell you, the, 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 a lot of the pilots that are guilty of not giving pirates are the fellows that fly in class A airspace. They go above 18,000 feet, position reports, are not required because they're in radar contact, and they're sitting up there doing nothing, reading magazines or sleeping or whatever, <laughs> and they and they should be giving pirates because the people on the ground are begging for it. That's true. That takes me to my next subject, if I may continue. Yeah, please. I'm, okay. I'm, re I'm really enjoying this, to tell you the truth. <laughs> please okay. continue. And that is, what is an air med? I know that some people teach that an air med is for single engine and light aircraft. That Ooh, is I don't, absolutely I don't incorrect. Okay, let me see if I have this one right. Let me see if I have this one right. It's it's weather pertaining to all pilots. Am I correct? Weather information pertaining to or for all pilots, correct. Yes. Okay. I ten points okay. for me. Okay, but there are three air meds. A Sierra, a Tango, as well as a Zulu. And your image Sierra is for uh, IFR, IFR conditions, yep. right? And mountainous obscuration. How to remember it? Where is what do you call the mountains in California? The Sierra. Airmed Sierra, mountainous obscuration. Airmed Tango is for moderate turbulence. And Airmed Zulu is for uh, moderate icing. Now, so, when a person gives a PIREP, they're asked to give the type of airplane. A pilot who receives a, a, an airmet has to make a decision. That's why it's weather information for all pilots. 
if I know someone is reporting moderate turbulence, I'm going to ask flight service who reported the moderate turbulence, or do you have any pirates that say what kind of moderate, what kind of airplane it is that's reporting moderate turbulence? If it's a 777 or a Boeing 747 that is reporting moderate turbulence and I'm in a 172, what does that mean to me? <laughs> I'm staying on the ground. <laughs> because yeah, that means that's going to be probably severe turbulence to me. That's why the type of aircraft is so important on a pirate. Now, take it one step further. That's why the decision has to be made by the pilot when receiving an airmet. Let me ask you a question then about, about this. So then it's safe to say that the airmets are, are subjective to the pilot then, right? So when we call and, and they say, oh, there's um, an airmet for moderate turbulence to the flight service station, um, what, what does that mean to, mean to me? Because it's not necessarily a PIREP, so I don't know. I, don't, well, I would ask them, do they have any PIREPs? to confirm whether or not there's any moderate turbulence. And also on those pilots, I want to know the type of airplane. Okay, so you would just go in there and see if there's a, a, a pirate for it, that which there probably, which 90% of the time there probably isn't because no one makes pirates, but I get your yeah. point. <laughs> no, no, I understand that. But that's what I said, and that's why it is weather information for all pilots. You have to make the decision whether or not you want to go out and go through that, regardless of the type of airplane you're, excuse me, Aircraft, because you may be in a helicopter. <laughs> That's true. Weather, weather doesn't care what category or class you are, does it? Nope. Couldn't care less. All right, now the SIGMET. Now, the SIGMET contains uh, information on severe turbulence, severe icing, and Texas is famous for this, dust storms, and or volcanic ash. And you don't want to be in any of those. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then the convective sigmet is what I call the Gordon Barnes deep doo-doo sigmet. You go in there and you're going to be in deep doo-doo because that's embedded thunderstorms, severe thunderstorms, lines of thunderstorms, and thunderstorms are strong enough to possibly produce funnel clouds and or tornadoes. Now, now these convective segments, though, there's, there's, um, from my understanding, when a convective segment is issued, they're also giving an outlook, right? Correct? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. And remember that your airmet, your segment, and your convective segment is all an area. It's not a specific route. They may say that it's an effect from 60 miles southwest of uh, Amarillo, Texas to uh, 30 miles northeast of St. Louis, Missouri, and then uh, 30 miles either side of that line. So you draw the line from those two locations and then draw the box, and it's somewhere inside that box. The same applies to a uh, severe thunderstorm watch box and a, a tornado watch box. It's, 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 it's an area. It's not a specific route. Okay. Well, on the subject of thunderstorms, how are thunderstorms made? What should we be looking for as a pilot? Am I going to go out and a thunderstorm is going to suddenly form over me without warning, or what do I have to look for here? Okay. What you have to look for, first of all, is your temperature dew point spread at the surface. And where can I find that? On your METAR. There you we go. You get your temperature, and you get your dew point. And remember that on the surface, when you have a temperature dew point spread of 2 degrees or less, indicates the possible formation of low clouds and or fog. And then when you are above 2,000 feet or higher, when you have a temperature dew point spread or 5 or less, indicates sufficient moisture for the possibility of developing clouds. Now, when you look at your temperatures aloft at, on your 850 millibar, 5,000 feet, 700 millibar, 10,000 feet, all the way up to uh, 39,000 feet, and you and you plot your chart to determine what your lapse rate is. Is it two degrees or or less than that? And usually, what happens if the two degrees, if the temperature is not go dropping at two degrees per thousand feet, but only maybe remaining the same, or maybe even increase, what we call an inversion. 
and then all of a sudden at about eight or 10,000 feet, it starts to drop off. That gives you instability in the atmosphere, and that's what you need is instability. You need, first of all, uh, low temperature dew point spread. You need uh, high dew points, and uh, also you need an irregular uh, lapse rate uh, through the atmosphere. And you put those three together, and you've got your thunderstorms. It's the same as dropping a piece of dry ice into a bucket of water. It's going to foam, and there you are. Because the one thing that happens with all that heat coming up off the Earth's surface, and remember that your steering winds, the winds that steer your highs, lows, and fronts, etc., are from 30,000 feet, uh, excuse me, are between 18 and 30,000 feet. So the air is cold at that point is going to drop down into that hot, moist air, and that's going to touch off your thunderstorms. I just want to say that, uh, just real quick on that temperature dew point spread, I think it was around last week here in Texas, I think the temperature dew point on the METAR for uh, for North Texas here uh, said uh, something like 25-25. It was like 90 degrees outside and fog. I couldn't believe it. It was it was the stickiest moist day of my life. Yeah, but if you have if you have twenty five twenty five, that that's no spread and that's a hundred percent relative humidity, which is conducive to producing fog. Right. Yeah. That's right. I, I just never seen it at that high of a temperature before. I couldn't believe it. Oh yeah, that's that's common. You get down to. Let's see, southern uh, down on the coast, yeah, it's Louisiana down the coast, it's Louisiana in the northern part of the state. Uh, but you get Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, the Gulf Coastal states. I've seen that up in the New York area. Oh, yeah, that's very, very common. Man, I need to move up north. I need to move to the Rockies, is actually. I think I need to move to Colorado, yeah, get up yeah. there. Okay, let me ask you this. All right. The, yeah. Most pilots do not how do not know how to calculate the approximate height of the base of clouds based on a METAR. What it is, it's it's based on the fact that you take your METAR and you take your temperature and dew point uh-huh. and you get the spread. Now, according to the way that it is taught in most flight schools, you take that temperature dew point spread, multiply it by a thousand, divide by two point five and it gives you the approximate height of the base of clouds. But you do it my way because people can't multiply by 1,000 divided by 2.5 without a calculator. So what is 1,000 divided by 2.5? It's 400. So you take your temperature dew point spread, multiply by 400, and that's the approximate height of the base of clouds, AGL, provided there is sufficient moisture to create the clouds. So if you have a temperature of 28... Celsius and the dew point at 21, your spread is 7. 7 times 400 is 2,800. So the base of the cloud should be 2,800 feet above your head. And you take Meacham Airport, has a field elevation of 710 feet, 2,800 plus 710. The base of the cloud should be 3510 MSL. That is amazing. That is amazing that you can do that so quickly. I, I do. I admit, I have to grab the calculator. I'm not. I'll be the. I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, here, I'm, I'm a, I, I, here and here is another one. Uh, if you have a, a contaminated runway, meaning a wet runway, what is the maximum speed that you should land at? Right, to avoid. Uh, uh, what's the maximum speed to prevent hydroplaning? Answer: oh. Square root of your tire pressure times nine. Yes, I remember that in my. Is that is that a commercial written question or is that ATP? Yeah. So if your if your tire pressure is 121, all right, square root of 121 is 11 times 9 is 99 knots. So the maximum speed you should uh, fly the airplane or land the airplane would be uh, 99 knots. When I say maximum, you you on the jet you're landing with speeds higher than that. You just keep your Blasted feet off the rudder. I mean, excuse me, off the brakes, not the rudder, the brakes. Because I'll you be, don't want a hydroplane. Truth, yeah, truthfully, I'd be surprised if I could get my Cessnas that fast, but. <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah, but the thing is, you take a car. Average tire pressure in a car is 32 pounds per square inch. 
and you take the square root that times nine comes out to 51 miles an hour. So if the road is a little wet, you should not go more than 51 miles an hour, otherwise you're going to hydroplane. Every time I talk to you, Mr. Barnes, I learn something. <laughs> I just I want to say that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the price is right. Uh, we've got some questions that came in from uh, Twitter users. Uh, Stuart, why don't you give us the first one? Uh, at John1746 asks, um, what kind of rain showers are safe to fly through? And I guess the opposite is what kind of rain showers, if any, are not, to, are not safe to fly through? Oh, I would I'd fly through a light rain shower without any problems in a small airplane. If it's moderate, I would take a chance, but if it's a heavy rain shower, I definitely would not. Which okay. brings up another point, you know, that people don't understand the true definition of Virga, V-I-R-G-A, which means precipitation falling from a cloud but not reaching the ground. I would fly through that, but I wouldn't, wouldn't bother me at all. Is Virga, would Virga ever be on a METAR? Oh, sure. What is what is the um, what is the code for Virga and a METAR? It'll just say uh, Virga Northeast, uh, ten miles or something like that. Okay, so it's not like BR for mist or anything. No, like no, that. no, no. Well, whoa, whoa. Let me just just make one point here about a METAR. I've had many students in ground school complain to me about why do we have BR and SHRA and all this. Why don't they put it in English? That we're the biggest and best country in the world and make everybody do it our way. Well, first of all, number one, we're not the biggest country in the world. Get out of an atlas. The best country? Yeah, we are probably the best country in some areas. But if I want food and I want baklava, I'm going to Damascus, Syria. If I want moussaka, I'm going to Athens, Greece. And if I want escargot, I am going to Paris in France. If I want a steak, I'm coming to the United States. But anyway... Having said that, we get into the discussion of why do we have these abbreviations. First of all, and people don't quite understand this, Stuart, and that is the international language for weather is not English. It is French. For example, before the 320 countries that make up ICAO decided and the World Meteorological, Meteorological Organization, before it was decided on a format, uh, what we used to call the old SAs, MIST was M, just the letter M. MIST is now BR because of the French word groom, B-R-U-M-E, meaning mist. Also, in the old days, for smoke, it was K. Now it's F-U because of the French word F-U-M-E-E, acute accent. So French is the basic language for weather abbreviations for the METARs and the terminal forecasts. Why is that? Because the World Meteorological Organization headquarters are in Geneva, Switzerland, right on the French border. And oh, okay. Not only that, not only that. But French is taught in many foreign countries as a second language, not English always. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that's where that yeah. where is where is located right there in France. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean you gotta gotta travel around the world to find that out. <laughs> Which yeah. I know you have. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question from Cessna Aviator. He wants to know what changes you see coming in how weather information is disseminated. Right now, uh, I don't think any changes uh, will be coming. Um, the the uh, format, I think, is very good. Um, however, the United States decided to be different. Uh, for example, uh, up until two, February the 1st, 2004, um, everybody agreed on the terminal forecast format. However... Someone in the National Weather Service, a new employee that was hired, and uh, decided, oh, we're going to be different. And so what happens now is that for the 48 continuous states, Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, the Marianas, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, we no longer use Prob 40 or Prob 50. We no longer use becoming uh, between say 1,300 and 1,500 changes. 
but we do, they are still used in foreign terminal forecasts. And it, it helps to confuse everybody. However, as an instructor, instructors are required to teach the foreign format for the FAA written test because the FAA written test supplements when you take the test is still based on the foreign format. Why? Because when you receive an FAA pilot certificate or an instrument rating, they have no idea where you're going to fly. And if you are going to fly to a foreign country, you must be very, very familiar with the foreign format. Also, temporarily has changed. Now in the United States, temporarily means this, that it means that, for example, let's say they'll say temporarily heavy thunderstorms. Temporarily means if you have any thunderstorms at all, they will not last any longer than one hour, and the total number of thunderstorms cannot be, cannot be any more than one half of the forecast time period. And in the United States, the forecast time period can never exceed four hours. So if you have a tempo, we'll say, from 1,600 Zulu to 2,000 Zulu, that means that you and could have two thunderstorms during that four-hour period. No single thunderstorm or event, whatever you want to call it, can last longer than an hour, and the total number cannot exceed one half of the forecast time period. So in the United States, uh, again, the other places I mentioned, you can have a tempo for two or four hours. However, if you go to my home like Bermuda, you may see a tempo from 1,200 to 2,400 because it is a foreign forecast. So we, we developed a new format to confuse everybody. Also, on the 5th of November of last year, the terminal forecast for 32 airports in the 48 states, Alaska and uh, Honolulu, uh, the forecast was made 30 hours uh, long. In other words, valid for 30 hours rather than 24 hours, and all 32 airports are international airports. What airplane flies more than 24 hours? I haven't found one yet. Yeah. <laughs> I was curious if you have any thoughts on the change in flight service since Lockheed has taken over. I understand at the beginning it was a disaster, but I have been told in the last year and a half or so in my flight instructor renewal courses that the service has greatly, greatly improved. That's been pretty much my experience as well. Yeah. Well, I've heard a pilot saying that they wanted to fly from Abilene and they would get a hold of a briefer who was based in Richmond, Virginia, and they never heard of Abilene. Uh, but that has changed, I understand. Not doing any flying myself, I wouldn't be you know, 100% familiar with that. Besides, when I flew, we had dispatchers that took care of that for us. And the weight and balance and, and the whole flight planning procedure and all that, huh? Yeah, everything was done for us. For example, remember that when you're flying, the shortest distance between two points is the great circle. Now, the great circle route. The great circle route is only a straight line if you use a polar stereographic chart, you know, like a, a globe. Um, but anyway, uh, I'll never forget on New Year's Day one year that we were flying from New York to Preswick, uh, Scotland, and if we had gone the great circle route, it was 11 hours and 30 minutes. Instead, because of the winds, the dispatchers selected a route from New York down overhead Bermuda, left-hand turn, direct to Prestwick, and we made it in 9 hours and 35 minutes. We added 600 miles to the flight, but made it 2 hours faster. It's called a jet stream. Nice. Yeah. I don't think I've ever gotten my Cessna into the jet stream. <laughs> you got to get up above 18,000, 20,000 feet to do it. That would be a little bit difficult to do in a Cessna. <laughs> yeah. No, but, I mean, in, in the wintertime, you can get your jet stream as low as eighteen to 20,000 feet, but usually it's up twenty-five to 35,000. We've learned all along not to enter any thunderstorm, regardless of size, but, but what are the differences in the most dangerous types of thunderstorms? Cumulonimbus mamatis. That is a <laughs> severe thunderstorm. That's the one where you see frequent lighting, 
lightning in the clouds, cloud to cloud, and cloud to ground. That's the most dangerous, dangerous thunderstorm, and you don't want to be in that one. And the one thing that you, uh, if you want to experience it, I have three times, and that is St. Elmo's fire. Oh, I've never experienced that. No, I, I, in a small airplane, I hope you don't, because that means you're in the middle of a lightning bolt. And it's a, it's a huge, bright white light, and uh, you are just scared. And, um, and I've been told by Catholic priests that that is the light you're supposed to see the day you die. So I don't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, are there many Catholic priests that ex- experience St. Elmo's fire? <laughs> that's what I'd like to know. How do they know that's the light we're supposed to see when we die? Did they go and come back? <laughs> well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I did want to go into one thing real quickly. Um, you mentioned that you are a dispatch instructor for American Flyers. and Can you describe what that program is? Sure. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't have the funds to prepare themselves to get enough hours to qualify them to fly for an airline or a Part 135 carrier. But there are also people who want to get into aviation and don't want to be pilots, and the way to do it is through the FAA Certified Aircraft Dispatchers course. First of all, you have to be 23 years of age, the same age as an ATP. The course is very similar to, if not the same, as the ATP, and we offer the course, we American Flyers offer the course at Fort Worth Meacham Airport. It is a six-week course. The first two weeks is the equivalent of ground school, where we do nothing but the uh, textbook. You do chapter quizzes, and you study such things as uh, flight navigation, rules and regulations, um, weather, uh, Boeing 727, 737, DC-9, what we call V-speeds, E-percentings, and things of that nature. Do the weight and balance for the same airplanes, weather, air traffic control procedures, and flight physiology. At the end of two weeks, where the third week we sit you down and have you take some practice FAA written test, and then you take the written test before the end of the third week. Then at the beginning of the fourth week, I spend nothing but two days on solid weather, weather, weather for two solid days. And then on the third day, we do Jefferson in route charts and approach plates and an introduction to the 737-800, the systems and also the performance data. And then on the fourth day, your first flight plan is going to take you between five and six hours. Your first flight plan is going to be from Dallas Love Field to Las Vegas, Nevada, what are the crew legalities? In other words, is it what we call a high minimum captain? Do we need an alternate? Is there a preferred route, standard departure procedures, arrivals, so on and so forth? And it takes us about six hours, five to six hours to do the flight plan. And then after that, we spend the next ten days doing flight plans, and hopefully I can get you down you can do a flight plan in under two and a half hours. And in the final week, the equivalent of a designated pilot instructor called a designated dispatch examiner uh, comes in and he gives you your uh, your FAA check ride. Half of it is oral, half of it is a flight plan that you've never seen before, and that can last anywhere from four to eight hours. And uh, we offer the course starting uh, July 20th in uh, Fort Worth Meacham Airport. And the total cost of these uh, courses is 32.95. Uh, plus your books uh, on R25 and your FAA checkride fee, which is uh, $300 and is cheaper than any other dispatch school in the United States. Not only that, we also offer job placement assistance. I forgot to say that. <laughs> One company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the company has 23 dispatchers and nine are my graduates. Are these sorts of dispatchers just a Part 121 carrier type thing, or do uh, Part 135 operators use them as well? Yes, they do. They're not required to by law, but the one company that has 23 is a Part 135 and 91 operation. They are airplanes that are owned by individuals, fractional shares, or by corporations. And they use FAA dispatchers only for one reason, safety, to take the workload off the pilot. 
Well, that's a whole side of aviation that I haven't seen before, but have heard about, and it, it's really fascinating. It, it, it's it's an excellent program, and there there are many. There are four companies down in the Houston, Texas area that have my graduates. I've got them at airlines. Now they're not going to get a job with a major airline, but I've got two regionals that are always calling me, looking for dispatchers, and their their starting salaries are between thirty and forty thousand. Which is more than you can get starting as a first officer with some companies. Yeah, that's true. What's what's with that? <laughs> I may have to because, I may have to come and, and take your course then. <laughs> well, well, because they are far, they are extremely important to have on your staff, Stuart. It's as as simple as that. They're they're on the ground while you're up there flying the airplane. They're watching out for you. They're saying, hmm, let's check the weather. Let's check air traffic control and. Yeah, they're doing the work for you on the ground and just keeping you advised of what they're doing for you. That's true. And they do have, I mean, they should have ATP level knowledge too, which first officers not necessarily will have. That is correct. They have to have, a dispatcher has the same qualifications, the same education as an airline or corporate captain with the exception of not knowing how to fly the airplane. We just have time for one more thing, and uh, I wanted to get into this before we sign off. Uh, you mentioned when you got started with Pan Am that it was through a connection with one trip personally. Can you go into that? It was unusual because uh, Mr. Tripp, after World War II, wanted to go to Bermuda on Friday nights and back to New York on Sunday nights, he and his wife. He was not allowed to own a home in Bermuda because he was a foreigner. And one night he took my mom and dad out to uh, dinner and uh, gave my mom an envelope with some funny stuff inside it called dollar bills. And uh, she bought a home in Bermuda in her name and then rented it to him for a dollar a month. And then when the law changed in 1960, she signed a deed over to Mr. Tripp. And the house to this day is now in the Tripp family. Now it's the sons and the grandchildren. And as he then felt, he had an obligation to my parents. And when I graduated from high school, he asked them one night at dinner, what's the boy going to do? And my father says, I don't know. Uh, I'm from Boston. I'd like him to go to MIT. But I can't take a 16-year-old born and raised on an island and send him to a big city like Boston. He may get homesick. And Mr. Tripp said, uh, let's let him join Pan Am in Bermuda in October. Give him a couple of months to relax. And then I'll take him to New York in uh, uh, April on his 17th birthday, and I will take care of him, and that's what happened. There, there, I was accused, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I was accused at times of some people used to call me Tripp's pet. So what? I got an education. Hey, I would, I would kill to be in your shoes. Oh, I know that. There are certainly worse things to be called than one Tripp's pet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. yeah. Well, with that, I guess... Oh, wait, I got one for you, Stuart. Yeah? Let's see if you remember. How to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit in your head. Oh, no. I have I have E6Bs for that. <laughs> uh, can I just explain it quickly? All I, all I know, all I know off the top of my head is that at negative 40 degrees, it doesn't matter if it's Fahrenheit or Celsius because that's where they equal. That's correct. Let me tell you quickly how to do it. All right, go ahead. We know that standard sea level temperature is 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit, correct? That's correct. Okay. What is freezing in Celsius is zero. Freezing in Fahrenheit is 32, correct? Correct. All right. 15 times 2 is 30. And this is the only thing you have to remember. You subtract the first number of the answer from the answer. For example, when you multiply, we got 30. The first number is 3. Subtract 3 from 30 gives you 27. And then add 32, and that gives you 59. I am going to probably wind up listening to this podcast four or five times just to write down everything that you've... I can't even remember. I'm already forgetting things. I, I've been writing down stuff as this podcast has been going on, and I've been trying well, to, like, yeah, the thing is I'm trying to I keep de- up. I, I developed that formula uh, flying between Shannon and Gander in June 1951, 
and gave it as a suggestion to the company. They paid me $5,000. Uh, and I found out just last year that $5,000 in 1951 is $62,000 today. And people said, what did you do with the money? Heck, I was 19. I was single. But I never dated Pan Am Sturgis, but a couple I knew had girlfriends who were stewardesses for American TWA and United. I had a date every Saturday night. I was in town, and I would take them to Manhattan to the most expensive nightclubs, and they had a ball, and I had a ball. I have, to, I have to ask you, did anyone ever come up, did any kids come up and ask for your autograph? Oh, yeah. Oh. When I was on TV? Oh, you're... Well, not not when you were on TV, not as a weatherman, but as a pilot, as a Pan Am pilot. I heard stories that all those Pan Am pilots, there would be people coming up asking for their autographs every now and then. Every captain was required to walk through the cabin on every flight. And in those days, we used to give out menus, and people would ask us to autograph the menus. One of my favorite images is from the, the early days of Pan Am and the flying boats and the clipper service. Oh, yeah. Yep. My first flight was in July 1945 from Bermuda to New York. It was the last flight of the old 314 flying boat. They went to DC-4s after that. And I remember we were sitting in our seats, my mom, my dad, my late brother, and uh, my aunt. And the steward came back with the menu and said, what do you want to eat? And, and he said, okay, your food is ready. Then they took us from our seat to the dining room to eat our meal. Back in the good old days of flying. Like a cruise line. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, now you fly southwest, you don't get anything. Well, we'd really like to thank you for joining us, Mr. Barnes. It's been a tremendous thrill for us. All right, fellas, I thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. You're very welcome. Wow, that was great. Uh, Stuart, was there anything you wanted to add before we wrap this up? Well, there's a few things. I want to give out some websites that people may not know about before we end here. Websites to obtain weather, uh, the primary one, he, we, we mentioned that the primary means of obtaining weather was uh, the flight service station, which is true, but due to new technologies coming out, there's also duots.com, which you put in your airplane tell number, and it has a recording that you get a briefing, and allows you to get your flight plan information and your weather along your route and notams and stuff. So it's a very important website that pilots should probably sign up for. I think it's a free sign-up. Go ahead and, and log on that. And then um, an alternative to aviationweather.gov is uh, maps.avnwx.com. That website, I think, uses Google Maps to list all the airports in your area. And you can overlay moving radar. And not only can you get your SIGMETs and your TAFs and your METARs all in one easy to use interface but it also um, it gives you AFD information so it's a really great website the only problem is is it's very broadband intensive and then I had a user suggested one to just get a, a METAR really quick is www.easymetar.com you mentioned duots.com uh, there is a competing site that the government also sanctions, duat.com, singular. Uh, that site it has a mobile feature, which is really nice. If you go to uh, www.duat.com slash mobile, they've got an interface that's specifically formatted for cell phones. I found that really helpful. Uh, right before a flight, I'll typically pull the phone out. Uh, contact that site. You can get last-minute TFRs. Uh, you can file flight plans there or amend a flight plan or cancel one. Uh, so it's really a handy thing to do in the cockpit right before you uh, start up and take off. Uh, I found it to be very helpful. Oh, I did not know that. As an iPhone user, I, I want, I'm going to have to search for that app. That's great. Well, actually, it's not even an app. It's just a website. So any phone that has web browser capability can go take advantage of that site. See, I'm a fan of technology. Part of me wishes I was in Pan Am navigating by the stars, but then again, you know, part of me doesn't. <laughs> well, I think I'll keep my GPS if you don't mind. One last thing, and I promise it's the last thing, is we've got a weather briefing you obtained earlier for the Florida area. Why don't you fill us in on that? I went online to find weather just so people know. Uh, if students have never called a briefer, they know what it's like and what to say. I was doing one VFR because in Texas the weather was fine. 
which actually that was at 3 p.m. Now it's 7 p.m. and it's lightning and raining outside. So if you don't like the weather in Texas, just wait a few hours. Well, that's pretty much normal. Uh, so I had a VFR. I wrote down some VFR stuff, but then I decided to uh, – I found some pretty nasty weather in Florida. So I called the Florida Flight Service Station, and I still had my altitude down at 6,500 feet. So for those of you listening – I, I say I'm going IFR, and I list an altitude of 6,500 feet, and the briefer corrected me instantly, so good for her, but I felt like an idiot. <laughs> Lockheed Martin. Yes, ma'am. I would like to uh, get a standard weather briefing for an IFR flight I plan doing uh, here in about an hour. Uh, I would like to uh, depart from um, Kilo Tango Lima Hotel to Tango Papa Alpha, Tampa. Aircraft number? Uh, 106 Alpha Foxtrot, and we're going to be flying at 6,500 feet. Uh, you going VFR? No, IFR, ma'am. Okay, so 6,000 feet? Mm-hmm. 6,000 feet, yes, sorry. Okay, let's see here. Well, you've been cutting across the uh, convective signet that they have uh, through Apalachicola Bay that runs into that north uh, uh, northern corner of Florida. Uh, let me pull that up here. Okay. Uh, it's convective signet, uh, 77 Eastern, and these just updated a little while ago, so these are brand new. Um, it's valid until 00 Zulu, uh, runs from 40 north northeast of Cross City, uh, to 40 west northwest of Orlando, and then it runs out to 130 west southwest of St. Pete. And then 140 south southwest of Tallahassee, back over to Cross City, uh, for an area of thunderstorms moving. Uh, they say to the north northeast at about 20 knots, tops for that area at 43,000 feet. Uh, so once you get, you go a uh, direct route over the water. Uh, yes, ma'am. Once you get to out there, just west of the Cross City area, and uh, to um, now it's well kind of north of the Tampa area right now, but um, the more more severe line of thunderstorms runs from, uh, oh, just west of Ocala, uh, just kind of north of the Brooksville area, and then, like it says, continues about 110 west, uh, southwest of the Tampa-St. Pete area. It looks like a lot of that. They say it's moving north, but um, uh, the eastern sections of it are moving north, and the western sections are moving to the south. Uh, so as I loop it, it is kind of moving towards the Tampa area. It's going to be a while before it reaches Tampa, but uh, the thing is you're going to have to pass right through that uh, that area of convective activity. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to get any weather out there uh, in the water. Tallahassee right now uh, is reporting a 1,500-foot broken ceiling, uh, 10 miles visibility. Winds are out of the south at 4. Temperature 2.3, dew point 2.1. Altimeter 29 or 85. The over towards the Brooksville area right now. Of course, it's still kind of north of Brooksville. Uh, they're reporting a few clouds at 2,600 feet, scattered at 11,000, 10 miles. Uh, but the automated system's picking up lightning off to the distant southeast and west and northwest. Okay. So it's picking up all that activity out there. At Tampa right now, a few clouds at 3,000 feet. Uh, with towering cumulus, overcast at 25,000, 10 miles visibility, winds are westerly at 10, uh, temperature 2.9, altimeter 2.9 or 8.7. I've only got one pilot report. It's uh, 20 southwest of Cross City at 4,172. He didn't report much, much of anything but light rain, so I appreciate any pilot reports. Now, the terminal forecast coming out of Tallahassee, there's not much weather left up there. Uh, between now and 01Z, 3,500 scattered with cumulonimbus, 5,000 broken, 12,000 overcast, 6 miles or greater with thunderstorms in the vicinity, winds out of the south at 7. For the Tampa area, after 2,300 Zulu through 00 Zulu, uh, 2,500 broken with cumulonimbus, 4 miles, thunderstorms and moderate rain. Um, they say between uh, 23 and 2400 Zulu, feeling uh, occasionally 2,000 overcast with cumulonimbus, and visibility is two miles. Thunderstorms and heavy rain, winds out of the northwest at 12, gusting to 18. So 
so you do get some lower conditions in those thunderstorms and some gustier winds. Uh, the area forecast, of course, uh, for the central Florida peninsula, 4,000 scattered, 12,000 scattered, scattered uh, moderate rain showers or thunderstorms with moderate rain showers, cumulonimbus tops to 450, that's through 00 Zulu. Uh, winds aloft at 6,000 feet, coming out of Tallahassee, 250 at 12, the Tampa area, 200 at 11. Uh, TFRs, I don't have anything there for you. How about notums? Uh, yes, ma'am, I'll take some notums. Okay. Uh, let's see, I don't have anything there coming out of Tallahassee here at Tampa. Uh, 27, the runway end lights have been decommissioned. 18 left, ILS glide path is out. I have some taxiway notums there at Tallahassee. Uh, kilo hole sign at 27 unlighted. Uh, Mike hole sign at 1836 unlighted. At Fox, a mandatory hole short sign light at 1836 is out. Here in the Tampa area, uh, Sierra 2 is closed. Uh, Whiskey closed between Whiskey 7 and Whiskey 8. Uh, tower light notums, did you want any of those? Uh, no, no ma'am. Okay. Uh, so the big thing is going to be uh, out there over the water for you. Okay, I'll try to... Uh I'll try to fill in those gaps somehow, maybe get a radar or something, but thank yeah. you very much. All right, if you need updates out there and you can get a hold of them, Flightwatch is 122.0. All right, thank you very much, ma'am. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, suggestions, or experiences. And you can reach us at our website, www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com. Or you can leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stu, that's S-T-U, on Twitter or MyTransponder.com. You can reach me on Twitter and MyTransponder.com as well at Pilot Stu, that's S-T-E-W. And until next time, go fly and enjoy the journey. Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast. Copyright 2009, Fully Stewed Productions.